You want me to spill the beans already? No, no, moving forward. talk about our large step forward we start with our large step back with a career that begins quite a lot earlier than some of the people we're going to talk about moving forward one final time we pay homage to music created in an earlier era you might be surprised though inspiration comes in a lot of ways and a lot of names that you might associate with a whole lot of different music may have taken little bits of cues from this gentleman here Thank you for checking out Dude Check Out This Song. I'm Pat. And I'm Ian. And today we're covering T-Bone Walker. Woo! And he went from like a jazz guy to a blues guy. It shows. If you listen to his music, it's uh, it's quite evident of the so. So T-Bone Walker was born Aaron the Bow Walker on May 28th, 1910 in Linden, Texas. To guitar players Rance Walker and Olivia Jimerson. T-Bone was of African-American and Cherokee descent. Ooh. And that relationship didn't last too long because his mother left and moved to Dallas, Texas, looking for a better future for her son. Ooh, Dallas, Texas. That's the outcome if you want a better future for your son. And so his mother ended up marrying someone named Marco Washington, who played bass and several other instruments. And... He had friendships with Blind Lemon Jefferson and Hughie Ledbetter. I don't know. You know those guys? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm surprised he doesn't have razor wounds. <laughs> In fact, he would actually be the lead boy for Blind Lemon Jefferson, basically leading him around town to play for large crowds of people so that Blind Lemon Jefferson could make money. Oh, that's awesome. He didn't have a service dog. He had a service blues musician. Service for a future blues musician, really. Yeah, exactly. It's like an apprentice, but you also have to be my guide dog. That's pretty, uh, pretty sweet slash shitty setup at the same time. And by the age of ten, he would end up dropping out of school to pursue music full time, as one seems to do around this time, this age. Yeah, especially in this era, there's nothing better to do. Fuck school. Go, <laughs> go be a blues musician. What could be the worst that or that happens? I ain't learning nothing. I'm learning more on the streets with my guitar. Yep, there ain't nothing that the blues can't teach me. And by the age of 15, he would actually become a professional musician, basically playing blues. He would start playing talent shows, carnivals, street parties, local dances, you know, basically wherever he could get gigs. In 1925, he joined Dr. Breeding's Big B-Tonic Medicine Show. Oh, I can't believe you got it in one try. <laughs> yeah, yeah, got it in one try. One try, as far as everybody knows. <laughs> and... Ida Cox would actually be in this medicine show, too. Oh, nice. In 1928, he would win a talent show that was run by Cab Calloway. And Cab Calloway liked him so much, he ended up inviting him into the band. Yeah, Cab Calloway is kind of a big name, I guess. <laughs> 
Because of him being in Cab Calloway's band, Columbia actually decided to record a few sides for him. And so he would end up recording Trinity River Blues in Wichita Falls under the name Oak Cliff T-Bone. They really let him put that on the record, Oak Cliff T-Bone? Yep. That sounds like like a pair of, like, really expensive sunglasses. (laughs) Well, Oak Cliff being the street that he lived on in Dallas... And then T-Bone actually came from his middle name, The Bow. So just T uh, and then Bone. Yeah, that's actually pretty clever. And the fact that it's like the, from the streets that he's from, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> that's like a, that, that's something that carries on for a long time. You won't see it until gangster rap has come up. <laughs> we're a little ways from gangster rap. Yep, but I mean, hey, he was calling it from the streets before they were. Look at that. Named himself after the street he came from in Dallas. And so this brings me to my first do check out this song, Trinity River Blues. You can't really hear a lot of his guitar licks in this one because he's still playing acoustic, but you can actually get, you know, to hear how good his voice will be and how bluesy it is. Still, it's just jazz music for him at this point. And actually, some of his most famous songs are jazz songs that would later be turned into blues songs later in his career, too. Ooh, very nice. A little bit of a shift up. That's one thing I guess you can do only if you switch genres in the middle of your life is like, hey, I used to play this, but now I play this. So here are my old songs, but in my new style. Well, I think it was just the opportunities that were presented to him because he played blues, but the people that were making him money was with jazz bands. Yeah, so I you could probably play both angles that way. Have your cake and eat it too, as wills. Hey, if you're making money playing music, you're making money playing music. That's all that matters, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, you can't complain, right? And so he would continue to tour with Cab Calloway, but he would also tour with numerous other bands in the Texas area. And in 1934, he would end up playing on stage with Ma Rainey. Oh, I mean, I guess we kind of talked about that lady once or twice. Yeah, once or twice. And essentially, after he played these shows... He moved to Los Angeles. As one does if you want to be around people. Especially in this area, I think, or era, I think while uh, Los Angeles probably still sucked, it probably didn't, doesn't suck as bad as it does now. Well, this era, it was still pretty segregated mm-hmm. at the time, too. So I imagine he went to those neighborhoods that were delegated for people like him, I guess. I, I actually, now that I think about it, also, this is very similar to the air or actually right before the era where would you through would write like do re me which is about the same thing pretty yeah. much it's from moving there and they're like if you ain't got money straight off to the poor camp yeah i well i i think there was a lot of bigotry in california at this time because they hated the okies i'm sure the african-americans moving in at the time they all made them move into the same neighborhoods yeah i mean i, I could definitely see that which i mean if we're talking about like you know connections there uh lead belly would start to play with woody guthrie at the same time so if they knew each other wait what year would this be 1934 oh, okay this is actually so this, this is before this is, this is before. before woody guthrie got to new york and that's yep. where he met yeah. lead belly so yeah this is actually a little bit before but within the next decade i would say is when this uh california area would start to be yeah or uh more in the scope of those people and so He would actually state that this is where he first heard about amplified guitars. And so him playing in jazz, he was really interested in it because it would actually allow him to cut up into the mix with the rest of the band, being that the guitar at the time was the quietest instrument with a bunch of brass 
instruments, you know? Yeah, and that that does kind of suck. I have been in the situation where you're not the right, like, uh, sound with the rest of the band. Being with an accordion, I'm always too loud for the acoustic sets, but I'm uh, too quiet if we play band, or they play amped up, and I don't play amped up, and it's just a, it's a fucking mess. Unless you got 7,000 area mics. <laughs> I don't think they had that in this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you literally have to look like the paparazzi's fucking looking at you to get like an accordion miking without like some sort of amperage. Well, and I would, I think in this era, if I, if I, I could be wrong, but I think in this era, they had the one mic over everything too. Yeah. The downward facing mics that were omnidirectional. Yeah. And you, and that's why you would always see the singer singing up because they were singing up towards the mic. Yep. That's, yeah, that's a cool little uh, Easter egg there. That's what that pose comes from. I think people still do it, though. Like, they'll they'll just hold the mic up and look up. There's still a lot of singers that do that now that I think about it. I imagine holding your head up, though, also helps open your throat up. You know, everything yeah, in there. straightens and, your esophagus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I could see that. I've never, like, tried to do it. Maybe that was discovered by accident. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is really useful. I don't know. I, give, I think opera guys always kind of raised their chin when they were singing anyways, right? Yeah. Kind of like the that's opera That's kind of the stance. style, yeah. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. A, we we honestly, after we uh, crack into rock and roll for a while, we're going to start to explore some weirder music. But, uh, you know, you just we can't without setting the proper stance for what's going on. It's yeah. just it, it's it's wrong for us not to at least have some sort of plan when we're coming into this. And so, by 1935, he would end up attracting a lot of people to his performances. I'm not surprised, honestly. Like, only one of the tracks we actually listened to had lyrics. He seems to be a lot of instrumental stuff, and it really does groove. Well, and it it wasn't just the songs. He actually would have acrobatic performances, and he'd also tap dance on stage. <laughs> he would tap dance, or he would have tap dancers? No, he would tap dance on stage. Oh, what a badass. What, is he also doing acrobatic stuff? Yeah, and I'll explain that later, because it's kind of been a narrative throughout his, his whole life of his, his stage performances. I got... He fucking does backflips? That's his thing? Oh, no. I we'll, discuss, we'll discuss this later. It's actually, he does some stuff that, like, Famous rock and roll guitar players actually do. All right, all right. I won't make you spill the beans, but now I'm interested. He would also, at this time, play his guitar where it's at a slanting motion, where it almost becomes like a tabletop above him instead of having the normal up and down guitar on it. Yeah. And so anybody you see doing that, that came from him. <laughs> like holding it vertically like that? Yeah, like, well, horizontally. Or right? horizontally yeah. like that. I mean... It, there's one person in particular that I can, or two people in particular that I can think of. I've seen multiple times hold it like that, and they are both phenomenal fucking guitarists. Yeah, and that he, being Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimi Hendrix. Yep. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll get more to some Jimi Hendrix influence later on. Also, in this same year, he would end up marrying Vita Lee, and over the years they would have three children together, and this was the only one. The one and only. The huh? one and only. His oh, true love. He found his true love. That actually makes me happy because usually we have to like sadly count up and I'm like, oh, number one. And then we're like, oh, number two. And then by three or four, we're like, number four. And Question. then I got to go, uh, let me look at my notes real quick. <laughs> three through five <laughs> through seven all happened in a year and a half. And we don't have any information. Shrug. Yeah. He had five marriages in four years. I mean, yeah, yeah. I tried to keep track. In but, Antarctica. You know, <laughs> in Antarctica. 
Apparently, she liked him being away touring. I don't know. Uh, hey, I mean, sometimes that's the way it works. So, w- what year are we at here? Let's uh, let's make sure that I'm on the timeline correct. So that was 35, and in between these years, he would just constantly play around California. And by 1935, he would end up joining Les Heights Orchestra as a singer, guitarist, and composer. And this is where he would start to develop some of the more like long note holding, like really bluesy riffs that you can hear from the future where it's it's like they hold a note and they just like hold it there and let it stretch out you know yeah they, and it almost sounds like like it would be a horn you know like because he he does because he was playing you're talking about weedly was right no you know like when horns would go wow yeah. wow like he would he would imitate that with his his electric guitar that's pretty cool yeah. So he's bending like the deeper notes, I guess, with that, because that's I mean, he would do it with you know, probably about the mid range on the guitar or maybe even multiple, multiple notes. It could be. So I'm starting to think of, like how you could actually like, make it sound like a like a horn. And I guess it really does just kind of come to the tension that you put on the strings. And with this band in 1940, he would end up recording his first hit called T-Bone Blues. Yeah. And you can actually hear like where the early blues notes come from because he's only playing like leads in there, mm-hmm. like really like set in the background where everybody would drop out and he'd do the, these cool little lead lines and stuff like that. And but he also has that element of uh, early folk blues, like the the heavy strumming on the the open face guitar. Yeah, well, I, and that probably comes from hanging out with Blind Lemon Jefferson and, and Lead Belly. And, yeah, and Lead Belly. Yeah, th- that does make a lot of sense because it seems like he seems to alternate a lot harder than a lot of other people do. You know, uh, he goes from the from the very classic blues like trills and runs, but with the strumming portions, he sounds so folky, and it's weird. Yeah. Like it's a it's a great shift, and I think it supports a lot of like the piano and stuff in his songs. But yeah, it, it can be slightly jarring if you're like looking for. I don't know, like somebody who looks at music to try and like source what the inspirations are. It's weird to have, you know, bar to bar, somebody going from one style of blues to another. Yeah. And there's some arguments with some music historians on who actually played the electric guitar live first. And a lot of people say it was this guy. Oh, so he's up there on the list. So who who is the actual people who are on this argument? So... You got Eddie Durham and Floyd Smith. Eddie Durham and Floyd Smith and T-Bone Walker are yeah. the three people who could have possibly played electric guitar the first time. Yep. Or on stage the first on time. On stage the first time, yeah. Because obviously they didn't because yeah, whoever invented, invented it. Yeah, yeah, the inventor was like, <laughs> I've invented a thing. <laughs> so in, invariably somebody played it before him, but we're talking about like verifiable yeah. on stage yeah there, there's no way you could truly verify who did it on stage first i mean if we but he was if, he if was up there among the early it, adopters we, yeah if we knew who invented it we could possibly get the information i we'll we'll look into that later when we when we talk about something else well i even got a quote from t-bone walker about this and he said i was out there for four or five years on my own before they all started playing amplified I recorded my T-Bone Blues with Les Height in 1940, but I've been playing amplified guitar a long time before that. And so he seems to think that he was the first one. Yeah, well, I mean, especially if he's been playing it for a long time before that. If that's not just a like a falsified claim made later in life and it's an actually like a verifiable claim, then that's, you know. Well, I think it's one of those things where there was nobody else around him doing it. 
Because remember, our yeah. last episode, Sister Rosetta Tharp, she also was an early adapter of it. Oh, well, yeah, we, they, exactly. That's what I was kind of thinking, like, who's the, uh, who, what's the timeline looking like there for the difference between them? So she started recording Electric around 39, but I couldn't find any information about when she actually started playing it on stage. Oh, okay, so. And so this is in 35 when it's, like, first coming out, you yeah, know? Yeah, so, so verifiably he has four years on her. Yeah, and that's, that's. All I can really verify, other than the fact that it seems, from my research, that a lot of people seem to think he was the first one. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, it's whatever we have evidence for. That's kind of the most important thing here. And so he'd end up touring around with Les Heights Orchestra for a few more years until in 1942 he was signed by the Capitol label, which was new at the time. And then he would end up recording with a 15-piece band. And this would be where he would record under his own name for the first time. And these were considered like classics. That's a lot of pieces for a blues band. That's where he really shows his jazz orchestration there. Oh, well, I think because he got his break in jazz, this is why he's been doing a lot of jazz in this era. Yeah. Well, and, uh, let's not forget that there is a certain era and certain angle of blues that does involve multiple horns yeah. and things like that. So 12 pieces is what you said, right? 15. Oh, 15. Yes. Okay. So 15 is definitely more than any of those guys probably on the average pushed, but it's not as unreasonable as it sounds. But that's also like with Sister Rosetta Tharp, where it makes sense that they were early adopters of the electric guitar because they had to get that sound out there. Yeah. And it, and it all depends on what you're making if you really think about it. So, you know, put a take a three piece out of that. So you have your guitar, your bass, and your drums. Take them out of that. You have 12 left. You know, you got three horns people, you know, that's now nine spaces to fill. There's there's reasonable ways for you to fill this, if you, especially if you have backup singers or yeah. something like that. I mean, 15 pieces is still just ass night. I would never want to compose for 15 people. <laughs> that sounds just not fun. And these are the two songs that he actually recorded for him, which is I Got a Break, Baby, and Mean Old World. And... Even though these songs are in that super jazzy style, you can hear his blues leads in there. It's almost like you hear the jazz, and then all of a sudden there's this blues guitar riff kind of breaking things up. And uh, so this brings me to my second dude. Check out this song. I Got a Break Baby and Me and Old World. Both those songs. Ooh, yeah. Those are spicy. Put them in your ear throat area where you put them in your, your listening esophagus. And, of course... The Second World War happens. <laughs> that doesn't fuck anybody's day up at all. And you remember what happened during this. We covered an entire episode yep, around so it. So does he get V-discs or not? Nope. Nope. So he shuts he the was, fuck up for a He was banned from recording. Oh. And so his recording career was put on hold. So he ended up going out to Chicago and hanging around there basically till the end of the war in a place called the Room Boogie Club. And he basically was just like a house guy there. You know, that's what he did. Yeah, I mean, honestly, in that area, he could get away with that, like, working as a busboy, playing a few nights a week, and getting, you know what I mean? Like, that's that's your shtick. You know or the he, whole crowd. All They're all your friends. Put a tip jar out. Well, yeah, and he's, especially with playing all this jazz, you know, he's probably used to some strange uh, chord changes and stuff like that. And so he's probably one of those guys where they could go, these are the changes, you know, just follow along, you know, and he could pick it up real quick. Yeah. And so he's probably an easy fit there. Yeah. The, there's certain like uh, styles of music and certain 
combination of instruments where I, there's like that that interlockability, you know, where you can just walk up. If like if you play guitar and bass, you can walk up and the the bass player can look at what the guitar player is doing and be like, "Oh, I can play kind of this. Don't worry about it." And they just play the root of each whatever chord you're playing and yeah. suddenly that shit just locks in with no no preparation at all. Well, and when the war's over, he moves back to LA and signs with a label called Black and White. And it was here where he'd do a ton of recording. He'd end up recording songs like Bobby Sox Blues, West Side Baby, T-Bone Jumps Again, T-Bone Shuffle, Cold Cold Feeling, Party Girl. Dude named so many songs about himself uh, or named songs like after himself. Hey, you got to kick ass a nickname like that. I would name half my songs like that. I've had some cool nicknames and I, I never felt like naming a song after myself. I feel like that that's in... Maybe it's just a modern era thing, but that seems tacky. Would you mm. Would you honestly like? Uh, I don't know. You got some cool nicknames too. Like, would you? But would you actually be like, "This is the LGF riff"? Like, <laughs> like I, I, I'm doing the LGF. I never liked that nickname. <laughs> <laughs> That's just what everybody called me. Is it because so. what the acronym means? Yes. Oh uh, well, of course. Well, it's also. I think the acronym came around because. I was super shy then, and so I was perceived as unfriendly. Yeah, well, I mean. I can be friendly <laughs> on occasion. But it was also during this time where he would end up recording basically his most famous song. And it's called, Call It Stormy Monday, But Tuesday's Just As Bad. Oh, and we've, uh, we've, we know this song. Because there's actually quite a few people who do fantastic yeah. versions of this song. In fact... He would end up doing multiple versions of all the songs I just mentioned, too. Of course, here's the thing I could literally do a dude check out this song of everything I've just mentioned, and then do a dude check out the song like six years later of the exact same songs, but then they're like super bluesy. Okay, so when you put the uh, when you put the fucking Spotify together, it's an, or whenever I'm it doing is. both. Yeah, put it put put them back to back sometimes, and not always back to back. But you know what I mean. Like, build it up, make make sure that you can compare on the really good comparable ones, but then sneak them in and see if people also notice the repetitions. Well, and so this is my next dude. Check out this song. We've got West Side Baby, T Bone Jumps Again, T Bone Shuffle, Cold Cold Feet, and Call It Stormy Monday. Call it Stormy Monday. And especially with Call It Stormy Monday, if you listen to it, it's super jazzy, but it's got that driving, like, three-chord bluesy sound to it. And this would actually end up, like, influencing, like, a ton of people like B.B. King. Just this song alone. Oh, I, I could totally see it. There's so many, uh, like, elements of this music that is just the wrong gear. Like, I was listening to it, and then... One thing that I have gotten really good at during this whole production is that I have realized like when certain themes and certain styles of like, like, I don't know, note structures start to come together. And then I was listening to him and then I was looking at the years and I was like, these don't really, they don't really combine. You know what I mean? He's doing certain things that uh, well, like jazz and blues people wouldn't be doing for some, some time. Yeah. Well, and you know, this is around the same era of bebop, too. And so he's taking bebops getting invented, and then he's trying to take jazz and turn it into, like, like country blues almost. And 
Yeah, and, well, not only country blues, but it just has like the the heavy like Chicago blues element on top of it, and then it also like we were talking about before, yeah. where his guitar alternates between like a like a folky style of blues and this classic roadhouse. Well, what would what? be roadhouse in twenty years? Well, right, and you can hear those roadhouse uh, like lead lines and lead licks that were from these recordings were pretty much ripped off by a lot of people too yeah and if because, you li- if you listen to our, our earlier recordings you really well hear we'll hear us say we're like the like thing we, he does we, that in jazz songs yeah exactly and we we mention it so many times and i think he is honestly within like the chronological verse people to actually be doing it because there's there is recordings like back to what what is his first recording at it's like because i know we had one in what 1929 yeah, 1929 was his first recordings. Okay, yeah. So that that right there with the the fact that I think the the first like that we heard was within the decade. That what? is still on the leading edge of that whole. And I mean, Robert Johnson did a lot of that, but it's almost out of place and fitting at the same time when he's playing with these jazz bands. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that's a that's a synergy that never re- was really explored enough. Jazz has a lot of elements, especially early jazz. To where it synergizes with other musics really well. So, I mean, honestly, like, you think of, like, gypsy jazz and, yeah. uh, you know, other types of jazz. Like, there's there's a lot of variations of, a, of almost a framework. And so, during the mid-50s, like, basically from 50 to about 55, you would end up recording for Imperial. And it was kind of over this time when he would record this album. And it's basically a ton of re-recordings of, you know, the classic songs like I mentioned. And and he's either doing his blues versions as jazz versions later or his jazz versions as blues versions Exactly. And, you know, he would even start developing even more stage antics. And I'm still waiting. All this dude was... You promised me stage antics and you haven't explained them yet, so there better be a paragraph coming up. Oh, it's coming up. All right. And so... All this guy did was just to like this was his big thing was touring. He didn't put out like a ton of material, but the stuff that's out there is solid. But because by the late 50s and early 60s, rock and roll was kind of pushing blues out of the way, you would end up start touring in Europe in the American Blues Folk Festivals and stuff like that. And so once again, we have another American blues artist touring Europe. Well, I mean, that's yeah, <laughs> we, we've we've almost hammered this point into the ground with like a sledgehammer. But if you got on this wave where blues was really cool again in like first Eastern Europe and the, or first Western Europe and then moving over to like some portions of Eastern yeah. Europe, even pushing as far as I believe Russia at, at some points. I definitely got over to Russia at some point. We've heard some weird <laughs> Russian rock and roll songs. Yeah, well, I mean, it obviously gets there eventually, but I be, believe in this era, uh, it's before the rock and roll revolution, but I believe there is some influences that make it over to that era or that area, even in this era. Well, and because we've mentioned this so many times, I've been kind of developing this theory, like why the British Revolution sounded a little different than what American rock and roll was at the time. Because, you know, American rock and roll rockabilly, you know, they had the Billy in there, which was the country aspect, where a lot of these British guys, a lot of their main influence was all American blues. And so that's why I think that invasion happened. They had all these guys who were making money over there, and so that's where they went to tour, And so you got all these young guys like Eric Clapton and stuff like that just 
listening to this going, oh, this is the most crazy music I've ever heard. Well, let's not forget about the fact that no matter how much you try and get away from, like, your your original style, like, Britain taking on rock and roll took the British music that was already there and yeah. just uh, naturally mixed it with it because well, that's just how it works. Well, like, and right, and then it's like, you hear the British stuff that came over and most of it was that heavy blue stuff where you had the rockabilly where it was like half country, half blues. Yeah, exactly. So it would end up being super heavy blues and they would almost develop like a whole different situation where they would, uh, I, I hesitate to give it any terms because we haven't properly researched it, but they definitely apply their own, uh, their own mixture there and uh, I I would like to explore it a little more as we're going forward, but we have to make sure that we do this properly. Well, and so he would actually end up regularly touring Europe from 1964 to 1972. Shit, that's like eight years, dude. And also, you know, in the 60s, we've talked about this before. The the blues revival happens, and so he was a big part of that. Yeah, because it's literally at this point, like, multiple people do multiple tours through Europe. And like we said, it kind of evolves from Western Europe and moves kind of eastward, though I'm sure for some portions of that, that's not true. I don't know if Spain was a big uh, influence right away, but I know that, you know, France, uh, England, Germany, those uh, those central countries in Northern Europe and Middle Europe all really got into it. Well, and this is what was weird for me researching this guy at first, because I'm like, well, this is a jazz guy. You know, this is a jazz guy. How is he so influential on blues? I literally think it's that jump from him taking his jazz stuff to the blues stuff and basically translating it over and then giving and then going, both options. Sounds yeah, well, like a good not idea. just that, not just that, but, you know, going, this is what I wanted these songs to really sound like. Yeah. Claiming that was your your what you wanted to do the whole time. I mean, that's a pretty good move, if you ask me. Well, I think his pursuit of just wanting to be a professional musician, you know, he ended up getting stuck in that niche for a little while. Yeah, and I mean, that's that happens. I mean, it is it happens anytime you play with anybody else because t- one person has one vision and another person has another vision, and the two people get together, and it meets right in the middle. Well, and just look at all those bands that made it big, but then they have that one album that's a lot different than all the other stuff. That's probably where they wanted to go, but then they got stuck in that niche. Or where one person wanted to go, and he just waited enough albums to where he's like, hey, guys, can we do my thing now? Are we talking about Pink Floyd? I mean, we're talking about actually <laughs> like five or six bands that are really popular in the 70s and 60s and 80s, but I'm not going to tell you who because you probably already know who if you're cool and listen to this song. Speaking of, we keep talking about the uh, the English Revolution and like this, this whole... Uh, european move for blues and uh, yeah and the beginning of rock and roll that kind of comes out of it one thing that you don't know that i know and i get to reveal to you oh uh, what is we had almost twice as many listeners overnight from europe than we ever have had before so within one week we had more european listeners than we have ever had in the entirety of our podcast that's crazy. Yeah, that, it's pretty awesome. It's it's multiple places. It's uh, Germany, and it is the UK, and it is also, uh, I think, like three or four other countries within that. But I thought I'd shout that out. Uh, we are now making our European uh, ascension here. So hello from us to you, Europe. What's up, Europe? <laughs> 
And so, in 1970, he would end up recording an album called Good Feeling. Ooh. And he would end up receiving a Grammy for this. A fucking Grammy? Yeah. Hell yeah. What year? 1970. Oh, I mean, the Grammy in 70 is actually kind of a big deal. And there's actually some kick-ass songs. Like, he does do some re-re-re-recordings of some of his songs, but it's actually a pretty kick-ass album. I'm going to be including songs from this. Well, I mean, if you revisit your material properly, it's not a problem. There's some people who can't get away from the first song they ever wrote, and they find kind of over-romanticized one piece, and they kind of ruin it with it. But there's nothing wrong with, like, revamping a song that's good into a song that's better in a different style. You know what I mean? Well, especially if your roots in recording are jazz, and you're considered an influential blues player yeah exactly you're like well this isn't even the right style i don't want people to look back on my best songs and see it in the wrong style I gotta do it in the other style too honestly he's the first musician i've ever seen to like do two genres and also record the same songs in multiple well, genres and that's what's crazy about this guy because i was researching him going this is this research funk like it's not gonna fit within the theme of the of this season and the more I research him, it's like, oh, like he has these little blues licks and this jazz stuff, and then he goes full on blues. And it's just like, oh, okay, now I see it. Well, uh, you know, in honor of uh, transparency with all of our delicate fans, uh, this week was uh, kind of a blunder on all of our parts. This is a backup of a backup of a backup guy that we had to uh, kind of pull out of the boot for reasons that I will not explain here. But uh, honestly, it, it ended up kind of being a really good start to what we're doing next because it is our last our really for a long time guys our last venture into the 20 and 30s i don't think besides birthdays we'll be in the 20s and 30s for well, quite some time we'll we'll back up into there a couple of times i got some guys i want to do but well, yeah, okay. The, the, the the main information I have them is books I got to get through. So. At least not for the next season because no. we are talking the next no, season. Definitely not. As you all know, we're talking about something we've been oh so anticipatedly building to, and I am fucking excited. We're gonna do the birth of rock and roll, and uh, you know we've built just enough like uh like building blocks to where if you listen to all our episodes, you're gonna understand the birth of rock and roll at least as much as we do. Yeah. And that's that's really all that this podcast is about. Uh, we're going to do a whole bunch of research, and you don't have to do it. And then we're going to talk to you about it pretty incessantly. And then in 1973, he would end up recording his last album called Very Rare. Very Rare. Which I think is a great name for your last album, honestly. Yeah, no, that's a perfect last album. Uh, at least it's not like, you know, overdone cooked, like, you know. <laughs> what, what do you call a steak when you, like, have to blacken one side? bad steak <laughs> I mean, yeah. whatever the whatever after medium is i don't even well done i don't know i like mine so bloody that it's uh, it, i don't even, you know we're not talking about steak preference here this is not dude check out my steak but i'm definitely putting that on my list for the podcast we're gonna possibly do is dude check out this steak in 1974 this would be a bad year for him he ended up getting in an automobile accident and it just seemed to like kind of put him down, not able to tour. And then because of his years of being on the road and drinking, you know, like it's not something I really mentioned, but because he didn't do anything stupid while he was drinking, you know, gasp. 
I know. Considering uh, Pat Hare from earlier in this season. No, no, don't bring that motherfucker up. I was so <laughs> excited we shared a name with somebody. I just had to review that episode when it came out the other day to make sure that nothing weird was in it, and it fucking pissed me off, guys. Pat Hare. Fuck Listen Pat to Hare. it. Listen to that episode. I'm going to call Lead Belly. I'm going to have him slash Pat Hare with a razor. This is going to be like, like, I don't know, like Pokemon or something. I don't know. Well, and so because of his drinking over the years, he start getting really bad ulcer problems. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Yeah. yeah, and so he would end up being admitted to the Vernon Convalescent Hospital in Los Angeles. What a terrible name for a hospital. That was the only thing you've had pr- uh, problems pronouncing this whole episode, and it was convalescent. I don't feel like that's a hard enough word for you to make that face. <laughs> I read it as something different to begin with. <laughs> Convoluted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was here he would start being treated for pneumonia. Unfortunately, he would never get over it, and he would end up dying of pneumonia on March 16th, 1975. So he suffered from, from this affliction for a long time. That really sucks. That's a long time to to die of pneumonia because the longer you have a degenerative a disease I, it, it, it's a disease right it's i mean when it's uh, the pneumonia is not a disease but whatever like uh you whatever caused the like when you, pneumonia. yeah when you keep getting it over and over there's something that's causing the pneumonia yeah i i'm not a doctor by any means so this is not dude check out this well i am let me nah, uh, <laughs> let me check out webmd <laughs> yeah let, <laughs> let me let me google web webmd real quick <laughs> Uh well okay we we really shouldn't be laughing because it is sad that a man died like I mean but don't drink a whole bunch and also I mean if he died of pneumonia he probably smoked too much too it just wasn't mentioned well I mean you can drink a lot but just realize that your death is going to be painful <laughs> yeah and early I mean don't get me wrong I I'm I'm not a non-drinker so you know in fact we drink during the podcast <laughs> God damn it, you've you've spilled the beans in. <laughs> and so he'd be buried in Inglewood Park Cemetery in Inglewood, California. I mean, as long as that's where he wants to be buried, that is super cool. But as far as I'm aware, being the from the generation I am, Inglewood seems like a terrible place to be, much less be buried. Well, at least he had a gravestone. Uh, yeah, hey, headstone right here. Uh, Janis Joplin, you don't have to worry about it this week. Thank you, though. We got it covered. Yeah, we got this handled. And so I did mention that, you know, he had some moves that he would do on stage. Yeah, I know. You fucking, you you made me wait. And we're now like a ridiculous amount into this podcast. And I still don't know about anything that he does antics wise on stage. So he would do things like playing behind his head while doing the splits oh shit that's like a i don't know like two people that i know <laughs> just uh, playing behind his head aka Jimi hendrix yeah or play like, or he playing, got famous for that shit or playing with the splits like stevie ray vaughn boom <laughs> like it's uh it's, two guys he would end up influencing oh and you mentioned playing with his teeth he totally fucking did that of course he did i i there's, I have that ability. I always call it before it's supposed to be. Uh, how, how did I randomly come up with playing with your teeth and then that's actually. Because you start been... talking about Jimi Hendrix and that's oh, one okay, of the things yeah. he's really known for. I could have went for a guitar on fire, but that's more of a Woody Guthrie thing. <laughs> Wait, did Jimi Hendrix's machine kill fascists too? 
Oh, speaking of uh, this machine kills fascists, I know that we don't typically talk about politics, and I'm not going to do anything that's too political, but I saw a picture of a United States Postal Service uh, collection box that somebody had put stencils, this machine kills fascists (laughs) on it, and I thought that it was too thematically correct for our podcast not to share. So uh, anybody who is going to deface you know united states postal service property please don't but i thought it was uh, appropriate that somebody put this moniker on there and another thing that t-bone walker would do which we also mentioned in the last episode he would also duck walk oh the duck walk yep we're gonna be talking about a whole bunch of duck walking soon so duck walking doing the splits things that you know Oh, Chuck Berry would do. Yeah, Chuck Berry would do. Yeah. And, and and somebody we, uh, I, I believe the guy we're talking about next week did a little bit of it himself. I don't think he was super well known for it, but I'm sure it happened. Nah, he got a little bit more well known for a few other things we'll talk about in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> we won't spoil it here, but honestly, tune in next week for the, uh, for what is the finale of this season. Well, and so... B.B. King would also say that T-Bone Walker was the biggest inspiration for him picking up an electric guitar. Holy shit. Now we talk, that... Yeah, we talked about his uncle, Booker White, last Hell season yeah. who helped teach him. But over the years and in multiple interviews, this guy is the reason why he picked up electric guitar. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do an honesty moment here and say that I personally, over my music career, never really cared for B.B. King more than any other, like, blues musician he never like personally struck me to where i was like oh bb king's the best but after doing all this research all roads lead to bb king man everything that we have done blues wise through all of our seasons in one way or the other fucking uh five degrees to kevin bacon uh straight to bb king every time well and i honestly wanted to do this episode about john lee hooker the problem was is he didn't get famous later in his career, and so his influence on the blues was after rock and roll. Okay, so we'll put him in the beep-boop-boop machine for later. Yeah, he's definitely one we got to do later. But, yeah, I really wanted to do it on John Lee Hooker because I love his stuff. Yeah, so now that we're moving forward, obviously, we're going to release our uh, our hold on only obscure artists just a little bit so that we can well, cover you people. You kind of have to do that when you get to the early rock and roll yeah, stuff. Yeah, because pe- more people have heard of more stuff. So we're going to release our, our death grip on that, and uh, we're going to see how, uh, how it plays out a little bit. We're obviously still not going to cover big names unless we're going to do an Elvis bashing episode. Are we going to do an Elvis bashing episode? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Uh, Send us messages. Let us know if we should bash Elvis or we should praise Elvis. And in 1980, he would end up getting inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. And in 1987, would be inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Fuck yeah. Was he alive for either of these? No. He Uh, died in 75. uh, Yeah, I know. I I just ask because I I keep at. Like hoping in my His heart of hearts, spirit was alive. That people are going to be alive when they get into this Hall of Fame. I think really nobody gets to be happy about going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame unless you're like a mega star from the '90s, right? Or you know you're BB King and you happen to live long enough to where they finally like, okay, we'll recognize you. And all fucking roads lead to BB King, apparently. Hey. At least I didn't mention Bob Dylan in this episode. <laughs> you just did. You literally did by by mentioning that you didn't mention him, Ian. You've swindled these people of their ear time. 
my plan all along. <laughs> okay, so I have kind of a hype announcement for the end of this episode. Are we going to do some last thoughts now? Uh, let me go pee real quick. All right. And we're back. Oh, okay. I, I waited long enough. Can we do our last thoughts now? I guess we can. All right. Are you throwing the, the last thoughts spotlight at me first? Or are you going to do them? Fuck it. I'll do it. All right. Go ahead. Honestly, my biggest last thoughts on this game his blue stuff is really awesome. His jazz stuff, not so much my style. As we've mentioned before, you know, jazz is not our biggest faves. But, we, you know, we've been able to find some really kick-ass songs in jazz. We've learned to really appreciate the, like, his history and, like, the style implications yeah. of stuff rather than just how it appeals to our ears. And the boring stuff we don't talk about, which is, you know, the theory behind it, too. <laughs> we love stuff that you guys wouldn't give a shit about. But the biggest thing I guess I would take from this is really his showmanship because just, you know, doing the splits, playing behind his back, even if it's like a lot of his stuff slower, you know, driving like Texas blue stuff, you know, I mean, that has an influence on every young mind that sees that because who doesn't want to go to a show and see a guy doing the splits, playing the guitar behind his back? I mean, let's be honest, like the, the showmanship error or angle of like, not even just blues, but rock and roll coming and any really big like musical slash show from before because we all know like vaudeville and things like that had music involved. It was a yeah, big portion but, of it. But that was also like acting and Yeah, exactly. But any like combination of showmanship and music yeah. is always such a great combination. And that's the biggest thing I take from this episode is really he showed that you can be on stage and doing crazy stuff and entertaining people in a way that would influence music in a way where a lot of his early stuff doesn't even fucking sound like. Like, yeah, let's be honest. I was truly worried about bringing this to you because I knew the music that I would play for you. You were going to go like, how is this rock and roll? But because of the stage show. A lot of the stuff he did was brought to rock and roll later by rock and roll guys who saw him play. Yeah, no, and, and exactly. Like, the, the music itself is not what is actually on display for the influences, what we're working for. He is the first person we've really talked about that has a stage show. I mean, I think we did talk about yeah, he one was other like, person who did have an actual more stage show. but Well, Rosetta Tharp had a stage show, but... She also, you know, had her vocal presence and basically invented rock and roll. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So I, I guess you could understand where he probably took a lot of the influence from while still remaining in his blues, jazz, comfort zone. Yeah, and I just take from it, you know, like maybe some of his music wasn't directly inspiring to rock and roll, but a lot of the stuff he did on stage was directly influenced into putting rock and roll front and center, you know, in the mid-50s when it really started booming. Yeah, at least it has a lot of the traits that the rock and roll definitely would, and it has to come from somewhere. Yeah. Like, especially sliding on your knees and, and playing the guitar with your mouth. Uh, yep. The one person would make it very iconic. You, you can't deny that, like, most metal culture is used to, you know, going down on one knee or... Whatever the big oh, the show, the power maybe. stance, the yeah, power they, stance with the with the rocking back and forth. Yeah, exactly. Never the, done that. No. Yeah, no. <laughs> Ian doesn't know anything <laughs> about that. It, it, but his hair doesn't rock back and forth. Sorry, guys. Spoilers. Well, my beard does. <laughs> All right. 
So I guess it's my last thoughts time. Uh, honestly, I'm not going to nail you guys with something that's redundant. I feel like if I were to give you last thoughts based purely on tonight's episode, that I could provide you nothing more than I have already provided you over episodes past. And I don't really like repeating myself as far as, uh, especially like messages that mean something to me. So I'm going to do it this way. One of the most interesting things about inspiration is the fact that it comes from across the borders, as it were. People in rock and roll some 30 years, 20 years later, sliding across their knees, playing the guitar with their mouth, whether or not they learned it directly from him or through a proxy. Copy of a copy of a copy copy of a copy of a copy. Whatever the modus that that happened, it shows you that inspiration has no bounds. If you make any sort of music, it doesn't matter if you're a hip-hop artist, if you make folk music, if you make metal, if you make electronic music, take your inspirations from the other side of the border. If you only copy the people in your genre, it gets boring and stale, and you sound boring and stale. Well, that's a great point, actually, because like a lot of hip hop artists nowadays are taking influence from like the 80s hardcore punk or even like the mid 90s to early 2000s, like pop punk stuff. We talked about in the Mad Shroom interview, uh, Waltz Time Rap. Uh, Anybody? Is that a thing? I don't I don't know if that's a thing. I'm sure somebody's done it, but like, you know, weird timed raps and all those things like these are. These are possible inspirations well outside of the the virtue of the inspiration, but yet would uh, be revolutionary within their own controlled environment. Well, and I think that's the whole point of this season is rock and roll wasn't just one thing. Nobody invented it. The whole world invented it. They're, like The culture of music invented it in a revolution that happened over 30 years. And, you know... That's why we're highlighting this guy, because we don't have this guy. Maybe stage shows are different, possibly lamer. Yeah, I mean, especially the big fancy stage shows with the guitar player leads. What if we, <laughs> what if we don't have the big lead guitar guy anymore? Because, like, like, obviously, he's not the perfect inspiration, but think of the dominoes. You pull one domino out of the whole chain, do we change something? There's no... There's no T-Bone. Is there no Jimi Hendrix? Do we have no... Well, and Jimi Hendrix would even say that he was inspired by him, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. Like, he would come straight forward, but would we also have any of the... Because then think of the Jimi Hendrix inspirations. I mean, Right, all, all the dominoes that came from that. Yeah, exactly. They had Everybody saw him directions. play his guitar with his mouth and set his guitar on fire. I mean, uh, think of the British punks that would do pretty much the same thing for 20 fucking years afterwards. Right. So honestly, like that's that is really, really all I'm going to give you for my last thoughts is no matter who you are, what you make music wise, uh, take shit outside of your genre. Explore the bounds well beyond what you're used to and see what the world has to offer before you make any any real decisions. Because even me, and I, I'm the type of person who seeks weird music because I already have a, a strange like enjoyment of music. And then I'm like, oh, I should find something more obscure than the stupid obscure shit I already listened to. And then I end up listening to like Mongolian rap. Mongolian rap is amazing. If like 
I, I know that sounds like a like a meme or you should laugh or stuff. You know, just go go check out some Mongolian rap. It is it is quite fantastic and you'll you'll thoroughly enjoy it. And and there's some killer Mongolian metal out there too, which is like the same like vocal pattern, but they do like the traditional like deep throat breathing noises they do from that which yeah. is really cool well yeah and that's what i'm saying these rappers they actually do throat singing while they're rapping so they do throat singing rapping and throat they- singing thank you yeah <laughs> is that what the word you were googling there no i was gonna google a band but you know i just look up just look up uh mongolian metal because you know there's some kick-ass shit out there you go to youtube and you type in mongolian rap or mongolian metal you're gonna get what you're looking for. Uh, there, I, I don't honestly know any specific bands to off the top of my head that are that I <laughs> I do know a couple names, but I don't feel like name dropping people. I guess is a better way of putting it. Do your own research and have a little fun, and it's it's great. And it's not just Mongolia. We mentioned Mongolia, but every single like ethnicity in the whole world has their own type of folklore and music. And guess what? You can use any of it. There's thousands and thousands of formations and hundreds of thousands of people who have already created such interesting concepts and fuck what, like (laughs) a thousand years of history to work from. If you're only listening to people in your own genre within the last few years, you're fucking up. That's all I'm saying. And honestly, that's what we're trying to do with this podcast is just show that music comes from everywhere. All of it. Everywhere. it's not from one single little identity point. There's not one like this is where it happened. You know, every little thing has an influence from every little other thing. And that's what music is, is just sharing of an artistic ability to make these little vibrations of the, of the air to create this temporary art that's been amazing, you know, since we banged rocks together. Yeah, and it really is a manifestation of enjoyment because, you know, one person liked hearing music and made more music and then more people liked hearing music and made more music. And then that chain continued forever. So in reality, music is nothing more than sharing enjoyment. So there's no real way to do it wrong as long as somebody out there smiles and enjoys it, even if that somebody happens to be you. And... Thank you for letting us share enjoyment with you guys. Thank you for listening to Dude Check Out This Song. And before I talk you guys all the way out, I have a little bit of a, like a a sit down, talk with the boys, important situation here. So we've been doing some talks behind the the, uh, curtain here. And we, while loving what we have so far, uh, think that we could bring you a much better podcast than we already have. Though, obviously, next season we are moving into the birth of rock and roll. And we are going to do this as a, a series of episodes that are is going to tell specifically the birth of rock and roll. After that, we'll be moving into a new and much more solid format. And I hope that, uh, though it's eight episodes away from, well, it would be nine episodes away from what you're listening to now, that uh, you will take the little bit of jarring change uh, and enjoy it because it's it's not anything you know surprising or anything like that we're still doing mu- our music history just a little bit of swapping around the way we do things and uh bringing you guys more information and a better quality show so thank you for tuning in give us five stars on whatever uh, social medias you look at and check out this the spotify it's in the description starting this week have a good night
We love you.